Good morning, First Baptist. It's good to be back, uh, although Shane knocked it out of the park last week. Thank you, Shane, for preaching last week. Uh, got a chance to, to see just what all Wyoming has to offer, and I was not disappointed. I didn't know what a good deal we got when we moved to Wyoming. I mean, we had Yellowstone, the Tetons, Jackson. It was amazing. Great week. Hung out with some friends. It was good. Uh, I was once told of a turtle that wanted to go to Florida for the winter, but he knew it was going to be way too far to crawl there on his own. Turtles don't walk all that fast. Winter would be over by the time he got there. So he enlisted the help of two friends, two geese, as it turns out. And the two geese said, hey, I tell you what we'll do. We'll help you get down to Florida, Mr. Turtle. What we'll do, we'll just take a rope and uh, we'll grasp it in our claws, our feet. And as we're flying, you just take your, your mouth and just kind of bite onto that rope and we'll lift you up and we'll fly you down to Florida. Well, the turtle thought, well, that's a great idea. So they get up in the air, they're flying, and someone on the ground looked and, and saw these three animals flying together and, and said, man, that's a great idea. I wonder who thought of that. And the turtle said, I did. <laughs> and it didn't go well for the turtle. You know, a lot of us are kind of like that turtle. We share a common trait and that we are looking for accolades. We want to receive credit for the things that we do. It's this thing you could call self-glory. But just like that self-glory led to the turtle's demise, it can also lead to our demise. And there's a few things outlined by a guy named Paul Tripp, Dr. Paul Tripp, who's just an incredible speaker. He was a pastor. Uh, he does a lot of counseling now. And he wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. And he wrote a number of things that, that happen when we, res, when we give in to this idea of self-glory. And I wanted to share with you five of these negative effects of self-glory. First of all, he says that you will parade in public what should be kept in private. When we seek self-glory, we're going to want to put things out there in front of people that we should be keeping private. Uh, you'll tell stories that make you more the hero than you actually were. And you'll find ways in public settings to talk about things that are actually private faith. Second, you'll be too self-referencing. You're going to talk about yourself too much. Um, you think your stories are more interesting and more important than other people, so you're just going to have a tendency to, to share more. In addition to that, you'll care too much about what others think of you. You're so self-assured. Um, you're hyper-vigilant about how other people are responding to you. And you begin to say things that's going to get the kind of response that you're wanting. Fourth, you care too little about what others think of you. You can actually be so confident in yourself that you really don't care what anybody else has to say or thinks about you. You keep your plans private. No one should be weighing in on on your stuff. You really don't need any help from anybody else. And then lastly, you'll struggle with the blessings of others. At the root of self-glory uh, is this thing called envy. And when other people have what you want, you're envious of them. Because at the end of it all, 
you think that they're less deserving of it than you are. And you see yourself as more deserving. It's hard not to be mad that they got what you deserve, and it's almost impossible not to crave and covet what they are already wrongfully enjoying. You see, all these things we are susceptible to. Now, I will say particularly pastors are guilty of doing this. It comes to this issue, how do I keep myself from doing it? How do I abandon this very difficult, insidious sin called pride? How do I get rid of it? It's a theme that comes up often as we're talking through the Scriptures and about the Scriptures, especially as we look to our example, Christ. The passage we're going to look at today comes from Judges chapter 6. We'll actually be in Judges chapter 6 and 7 this morning. I'm going to start out uh, with Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Then I'm going to jump down to uh, chapter 7 and look at verses 16 through 18. So we'll look at those two chapters as we read today. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Now a terebinth is it's an oak tree which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. While his son Gideon was, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And why are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I now have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Then jumping down to uh, chapter 7, verses 16 to 18. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all those who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. You may be seated. We're continuing our series in this book of Judges this morning, and it's a place where there is no real leader. And you're going to see that people are doing what's right in their own eyes every week, week after week, with the exception of last week. We heard that song. But every week you keep seeing the same thing. Israel was doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're in the middle of a conquest. At least they're supposed to be in the middle of a conquest. They're supposed to be getting rid of all the Canaanites in this land that God had promised to them. 
Unfortunately, that's not what's happening. The Israelites are cozying up with a lot of these Canaanites, and God said, look, if you're around them, you're going to become like them. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Judges. This week, we're going to go deeper. We're going to look at this character by the name of Gideon. And in doing so, I want to see four things. First of all, we'll see the initial panic. Then the calmed assurance, followed by the dangerous pride. And then we'll answer this question, how do I abandon my pride? How do I abandon my pride? So we'll be in chapter 6 and part of chapter 7 this morning, focusing on this man named Gideon. Now we heard in, the, in chapter 5, and Shane brought it out last week, this providence of God. And you heard that song. But then we see that Israel's right back to their old business. And I want to get to this first part, um, which in point one I've called the initial panic. And I want to quickly summarize the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Because the people cried out, they're being oppressed by this guy Midian and the Midianites. And uh, they wanted relief, so God sends a prophet. And the prophet speaks to them in verse 8 and says, uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Now I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So they get a little history lesson. The prophet is simply reminding them of the truth of what God did. So much of Christianity in our faith is remembrance. You know, communion is an act of remembrance. Remembering what it was Christ has done for us. Then we get to our friend Gideon. And we see that God himself shows up to summon Gideon to a task. Now God comes to him uh, as an angel of the Lord. You see this, this phrase throughout the Old Testament. And it is a theophany of God. A theophany is is how God expresses himself to the people. You see it uh, with Moses in the burning bush. That was a theophany of God. You see it with Abraham when God appears as this, this burning pot. Those are theophanies. That's God making his presence manifest in a, a particular way. This time is this angel of the Lord. Uh, and we start there in verse 12. and It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. Almighty man of valor. Wow. I mean, that's quite a, an introduction. There's a hint of sarcasm in it, too. Because look what it says about Gideon, verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under this terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out weed in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So see, these Midianites are coming and bullying the Israelites out of their crops. So he's hiding. Shh, go do it in private. Hide your lunch money. Then we pick up again in verse 18. This mighty man of valor comments, really kind of laughable as we go through the text. And then Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. But, huh? Wait a second. God himself has appeared to Gideon. And then he questions God himself. 
I mean, he's saying, God, you've forsaken. Well, wait a second. I haven't forsaken you. I'm, I'm right here. I'm telling you what to do. So he's showing this real ignorance. He's showing memory lapse. He's showing skepticism. And it's not even occurred to him, um, well, he, God is showing up now, so he hasn't really abandoned us. Then they have another exchange in verses 14 and 15. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's saying, God, I'm the weak of the weak. Does he sound like a mighty man of valor? No. I mean, it's like, it's like God, why did you choose this guy? That becomes more clear. The passage continues in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my presence and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. We've got this wonderful patience of God patiently dealing with Gideon, eradicating his fears and his concern. The narrative continues. Gideon brings a meal to him, and then it's miraculously consumed by fire. And we get to verse down to 23, and we see he's still afraid. So he's gone from disbelief to being unsure. Then he says, look, I'm too weak to do it. And then after complying with the first task the Lord gives him to do, he goes and he tears down these altars that had been built to, uh, to Baal there in the land. Then, again, he tests God. He tests God with a fleece. And he puts the fleece out once, and he says, um, Lord, make the fleece wet when the ground is dry, and God does. Then he does the, the converse. Lord, make the fleece dry when the ground is wet, and God does. When all this is done, Gideon says, okay, I'll do it. But what does he do? He musters an army of 32,000 men to go and take on these Midianites. Uh, and then God tells him in chapter 7, verse 2, the people with you are too many. Too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God wants it clear that it is not the Israelites that are going to save the Israelites. That it's God himself that's going to save the Israelites. So he starts paring down this army. First he says, okay, let the scared ones go. That was about 20,000. Boom, gone, right off the top. And that takes him down to about 12,000. God says that's still too many. And then he, 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 uh, he puts out another test. And this is very interesting because notice how Gideon tested God twice with the fleece. And now twice God is going to pare down this huge army that Gideon has built. So he does this thing with water, and he says, this is what I want you to do. Have these 12,000 men drink. The ones that kneel down and lap up the water like a dog, he said, let them go. The ones that kneel down and scoop it up with their hands, hang on to them. Now, I'd been taught, and maybe you had too, that the reason God kept those who had scooped out the water with their hand is because they were sort of like better warriors. 
Uh, they had that one hand with the water, then they could have that sword out and, you know, kind of sling it around at whoever might be coming at them. But, but the whole point of this text is it is not the ability of the soldiers. So I believe that what God is doing, he is just coming up with an arbitrary test to get as many people out as he can. So he uses the water. Uh, these men, as you're going to see, never pick up a sword. So it would be a moot point if they were somehow tested in this way as being better soldiers. So this time, God takes it down to 300 people. And they're going up against these Midianites. And the text says that they have soldiers and camels that are without number, that they're lying down in this valley like locusts, ready. And he's pruned down this army, and we see that Gideon is still quite afraid. You know, oftentimes God is going to place us in hard, difficult circumstances. And the tendency can be to panic. Just yesterday morning, I had a, a really full list of things to do, and I was kind of wondering how I was going to get it all done. And I, and I got up, and I don't know what our dog had eaten, but he completely decimated the basement. I mean... <laughs> In the carpet, it was bad. It was just bad. And I kind of had this, oh, my gosh. I, I, it's going to take me hours to get all this cleaned up. And it did. It took hours. And you never know what's going to happen. That's, and that's a small, small thing. Some of you are facing much bigger, challenging, difficult circumstances than that. It can come in the way of a diagnosis. It can come in the way of a job loss. It can come in, in so many ways. It can be a... A test that you took, that you feel like you bombed. And the tendency can be to panic whenever that happens. It's when that fear wells up in you. You don't know how it's going to turn out. But does panic always have to be our knee-jerk reaction to life circumstances? There was a scene uh, in the movie We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson it was just, and it stuck out in my mind because Mel Gibson had trained these soldiers to go out and they were going to go to a, a place in Vietnam and, and, and do battle with the, uh, the VC there. And they land, uh, they land and, the, and the soldiers are running out and then all of a sudden they come under heavy fire. There's bullets flying, there's bombs going off and all of a sudden these soldiers, they start to freak out. And they're, they're yelling and hollering and he goes, hey, hey, hey. He said, calm down. He said, this is the battlefield. He said, this is what we expect. Guys, we're on the battlefield. And we should be expecting the bad stuff to happen. But how then do we keep from getting thrown into a panic? Well, that comes in this next section. This theme of verses, this, this calmed assurance that we can see here, uh, sprinkled all through this passage in the midst of all these tests that Gideon brings to the Lord, we find these wonderful assurances that God is giving to Gideon. And he's dealing patiently with Gideon's panic. We see it in verse 12. God says, the Lord is with you. He even calls him almighty man of valor. Then in verse 16, God says, but I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. Then in verses 9 through 11, Gideon was still afraid through all this. He, this is after the deal with the fleeces. God said to him, Arise and go, against, go down against the camp. These would be the, the Midianites. For I've, for I've given it into your hand, but if you are afraid to go down, 
Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Well, Gideon's still scared, and he grabs his servant, Pura, hears about a dream, and then he has some sense, uh, some sense of courage, enough courage to go up against these Midianites. See, God gives us promises for troubled times. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's about 750 promises God gives us to reassure us that He's with us, that He's in charge of the program. It's like, look, I know what's going on. Um, for example, He promises salvation to all who believe, Romans 1. He promises that all things will work out for good for His children, Romans 8. He promises comfort in our trials in 2 Corinthians 1. New life in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5. Peace that will guard our hearts and mind in Christ, Philippians 4. To supply our physical needs, Matthew 6. An abundant life to those who follow him, John 10. And he promised that he will return for us in John 14. See, he gives us these promises so we don't have to just jump to the panic button. We don't have to jump to fear. You see, you've always got the choice. When the bad news hits, you've got a choice. Now, you may think, Chad, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I, I, when, when it comes, I, you just you can't control. You're right. You can't control the circumstances that come. But you can choose how you're going to respond. Even in that very second, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl was actually in a concentration camp. He survived the Holocaust, but he learned a valuable lesson while he was in that concentration camp. And this is what he says about this idea of choice. He said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Chuck Swindoll said something very similar in a quote that I used uh, some time ago, that you can choose your attitude. Now, to my knowledge, Viktor Frankl it was not a believer. Uh, he went on to, uh, to get, he went to the field of psychology, but he's hitting on an important prove an important point here is that we can choose. You can choose in that moment to panic, or you can be reminded of the promises of God, and you can receive that calmed assurance that God is, is trying and attempting to impress upon Gideon if he'll received it. But there's a danger even when we recognize that God is working, when we see that God is using us, when we see, hey, I just overcame panic. There's this danger of pride that can come in. And uh, God has pared down the, the army of Gideon to 300 men. And we pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 16. And it says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars. They're ready to go into battle. See that? Trumpets and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Verse 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, 
I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. The men do as Gideon says. They surround the camp. They break the jars. They blow the trumpets. And they shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Now, wait a second. Now, after they do that, the men in the camp slay each other. They pull out their own swords and start killing their own men. Then they run off, and they run quite a ways, and some other Israelites wipe out who's left. Now, all these turkeys did was blow a horn and break a jar. And they yelled out, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, wait a minute here. See, here's the problem. Gideon was wanting some of the limelight for himself. So he throws on that little tagline, and for Gideon. Now, God had intentionally pared down that army to where it's not even really an army anymore. It's just some guys with some pots and trumpets and torches. And he did that to show the Israelites that he was the one who won the battle. He was the one that won the battle. And the saddest part of this is that Gideon, who was a skeptic, became a believer, and now he's become prideful. He's traded in skepticism for swagger. You see, this is always a danger for us. There's this heart condition, and I I hate to say it, but I think it exists particularly among us Americans who have done well for ourselves. We built the business. We won the trophy. We passed the test. We won the contest. Hey, look at us. Well, wait a second. When you catch yourself going down that path, be very, very careful. Who gave you that mind to start that business, to get that degree? Who gave you those legs that you could run so fast? Who gave you that arms that you could lift so much? Who put you in a place where you had the kind of opportunity to even do those things? You see, God had way more to do with this than you or I ever did. He's the one that deserves the glory for whatever it is that you and I do. So how do we start abandoning pride? You abandon pride by giving God the glory. You know, when someone pays you that compliment, yeah, say thank you. You, know, you don't, don't jump down there and say, thank you. But you know what? Intellectually realize that it was God that did it. And let that get down on a heart level to where you really believe that it was God who gave you that chance, that opportunity to do whatever it was you were just congratulated for. In closing, I want to introduce you to a, a woman by the name of Catherine Shu. She was born in 1914 in China, uh, and she, she lost a brother from tuberculosis. And that set her on this path. She actually thought, what if I could help eradicate tuberculosis from the world? So she was accepted in a very exclusive medical school in China. She asked the Lord to provide everything she would need to go and, and go out on this pursuit to eradicate suffering due to tuberculosis. So, so she does. She ends up coming to America 
And she worked for a little while in Pennsylvania, and she was doing so well in working with tuberculosis patients that she was called down to Houston. And while she was in Houston, she set up six clinics that had a 75 to 80 percent um, uh, rate of, of overcoming tuberculosis in, in young patients. It was unprecedented. That kind of a success rate had never been seen. And she was awarded, uh, what was it called? The coveted, it was the Distinguished Achievement Award from an 11,000-member uh, American Thoracic Society. And when she got that award, this is how she responded. She said, this is not my own achievement, but what God has wrought by his mighty power. Isn't that a great response? I hope that's the response of our hearts, of our minds, when we are given that opportunity either to glory God or self-glory. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us to be used for your glory. And Lord, I pray that we would use our gifts for your glory. However you may have gifted us, God, I pray that we would always see it. Uh, God, and, and we, we do work hard. We do want to do our best. At the same time, we do those things, God, ultimately to show the world your love and your magnificence. And God, I pray that you would help us to abandon this need, this pride we have to glory in ourselves. We ask in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Have a great day.